0: This blessed and wonderful book. I'm learning so much from this study and uh, I've become so encouraged by what is in this book. So as we enter into chapter 19, let me just... By way of introduction, let me provide some context for you all so that we make sure that we're all on the same page and kind of going forward uh, together. And so therefore, if you've forgotten what we have been discussing the past few weeks or if you've not been with us, then uh, we want to make sure that we're all uh Kind of up to date. You'll recall that chapter 17, verse 1 began a whole new section, and chapter 17, 1 through 19, 10 was a uh, was a major section that described and outlined and gave some detail regarding the judgment of this world system called Babylon. Now, Babylon in the Book of Revelation is not a literal city. It is not talking about some reorganized. City called Babylon But John uses language from the Old Testament Remember, we're using the Old Testament As our interpretive guide For the book of Revelation We are not using current events And we don't read the newspapers And we don't watch CNN To give us our interpretation of the book of Revelation Rather, we look to the Old Testament And we use Scripture to interpret Scripture And so, John has been using Old Testament Um... Language from Ezekiel and Isaiah to describe this world system. This world system that opposes God, that lures men and women away from the purity of devotion of Christ to idolatry and immorality. So he's calling this world system that lures men and women away from devotion to Christ and into idolatry and into immorality. He's calling that world system. He's calling it Babylon. And he's describing this judgment. Of uh, chapter seventeen, one through nineteen, ten describes the judgment on this world system. We noted last week this, uh, and, and he's called Babylon the harlot or a prostitute. And then last week we saw how. The church of God is called the Bride of Christ. And so we can't miss this very obvious um, contrast, right? So chapter 17, 1, we see this description of this harlot who lures men and women away from purity and devotion to Christ. And then in chapter 19, starting with verse 1, we see the church called the Bride of Christ and this idea of this wedding feast. And so um, uh, the Bride of Christ... Then remains faithful to the bridegroom Christ, while the husband or while the harlot um, causes men to commit idolatry. Does that make sense? Do you see that very very distinct contrast? We have this harlot who causes men to commit adultery, while while the church remains faithful to Christ. We saw last week and over the, the course of uh, the past few weeks, we saw that heaven rejoices in the judgment of Babylon. And it seems kind of odd that heaven uh, would rejoice in, in such a calamity. But the reason why heaven rejoices is because this world system called Babylon actually ends up damning men's souls for eternity. And once she is destroyed, heaven rejoices because this force which condemns men to eternal separation from God is destroyed. Of course heaven rejoices. But heaven also rejoices, not only because this harlot is judged, but heaven also rejoices because the saints of God are vindicated. That is, the people of God who have remained faithful to God, who have been called all sorts of names, who have been put to death, who have been belittled and defamed, and who have been uh, ridiculed and mocked and persecuted, they are vindicated on this day when Babylon is judged. That's where we've been. That's the context. Let me give you a little preview uh, of, of where we're going. And it's important that we take a look briefly as to where we're going. At, where we're going because, quite honestly, today is, uh, is a really, really difficult passage of text. It's very uncomfortable. So, be, because of the graphic nature of our text, um, viewer discretion is advised. <laughs> It is graphic. In fact, it may be one of the most graphic uh, passages in Scripture. Because it, it talks about some very, very serious judgment. We are not a hellfire and Brimstone Church. But when the Bible talks about hellfire and brimstone, we'll talk about hellfire and brimstone. And when this Bible talks about grace, we talk about grace. That's why we teach through the Bible one book at a time. And we go through it and we, that's what we do. But let me tell you a little bit of something about salvation. If you've been at this church for a while, you've heard me say this before. I pray you, you constantly keep it in your memory. Salvation implies peril. Does that make sense? To be saved from something means that you're being saved from something uncomfortable. Nobody gets saved from a pleasant experience, right? You're only saved from something that is dangerous, something that is bad. So when we talk about salvation, we love to talk about salvation, don't we? Because salvation is the cornerstone of our faith. But if we're going to talk about salvation, we have to talk about what is it we're being saved from. We're not being saved from something pleasant. You only get saved from something harmful. So when we, as a church, gather and we talk about salvation in Christ, we need to understand that we glory in salvation, but we have to realize that we are being saved from something. So our next question then is, if, if salvation implies peril, our next question is, how bad was the danger? Was it just a mild danger? Was the danger that we saved were saved from something, you know, not so bad? Well, how could we know? I can tell you this. The magnitude of the danger that we were saved from can be measured by the cost of the remedy. Does that make sense? The the magnitude of the danger that we were saved from can be measured by the value or the cost of the remedy. And what was the remedy? The remedy was that God became flesh and dwelt among us, sent His only begotten Son who sit, who knelt in the garden of Gethsemane and said, Father, if there be any other way, let this crucifixion, this cup, let it pass from me. But not my will, but thine be done. So God of glory stepped down out of the heavenly realm, like we sang in that last song, entered into our sphere, dwelt among us, became dependent upon mankind, died a gruesome death on a cross at the hands of those whom he created. That's the cost, that's the remedy. If that's the remedy, how great the danger that we were saved from. So, today we are going to see that God judges unrighteousness. And I'm admitting to you, this is a graphic passage of text. Because God judges unrighteousness, and it will be very unpleasant. And let me tell you this, God not only judges unrighteousness, but God saves men from their unrighteousness, and He makes them righteous. So we need to understand, both: God will judge the unrighteousness of men and women, and God saves men and women from that peril. We read this passage of text. And we might be somewhat uncomfortable with it. And it's certainly reasonable to ask saying, you know, I have friends and I have family members who do not know the Lord. What about them? Here's what I will tell you. That the end of the age has not yet come. The passage that we are going to read today is not yet here. And this is why we need to be men and women of prayer. We need to be a church of prayer pleading on behalf of God that people come to the knowledge of salvation. Prayer continues to be effective. How many of you have prayed for a long time to see a loved one come to know the Lord and then they do? Amen. This is why we do this. You know they say that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different result. I reject that because every day we get down on our knees and pray for the same person over and over again expecting a different result. Because we have a God who will change the hearts of men. Amen. This is why we, we emphasize missions. This is why we emphasize evangelism. Because the end of the age has not come. And we've read Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 21. And it is a perilous chapter. And we will continue to go. We'll go to Ecuador. One of the things we're going to do in Ecuador is we're going to train and help train men and women. Revival. Immense revival is taking place in, in, in Ecuador. Tens of thousands of people are coming to know the Lord on a regular basis. They are no longer being simply a mission receding uh, country. They are a missionary-sending country. And we are going to go there and help prepare missionaries to go out into all the world and spread the gospel. How do we reach the ends of the earth? How do we declare the gospel to the ends of the earth? There are a lot of ways we can do it. One of the ways we can do it is we can go and train men and women who are going to go into all of the world and preach the gospel and so the preview That's just by preview let me tell you the importance or the need of, the, of this passage of text those who face the people who John is writing to have faced both persecution and and temptation to compromise, and they are facing these threats. John writes, I believe, John writes this chapter to reveal truth to us and also to inform us that those who face persecution and compromise can do so without fear. That is, folks, for many, many years, the church in America has received somewhat of favored status. We have been favorable in our culture, but that is waning. We are becoming less and less favorable. You can now lose your job for being a Christian. Literally, you can lose your job because you are a Christian. I'm not saying because you're being a jerk Christian. I'm saying because you are a Christian. And we can face a very uncertain future. Because we know that, number one, we can face the scorn, whatever measure of scorn that comes our way, because we know in the end we win. And we know that the scorn that we face, and John's readers knew that the scorn they faced was mild in comparison to the victory. This is why Paul said, you know, for this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. This momentary... Paul was beaten many times. He was shipwrecked. He was left for dead. He calls this momentary light affliction. You know, somebody calls us a bigot and we think, oh my goodness, the whole world is collapsing. Paul said, ah, momentary light. No big deal. Why? Because he understood the victory. So let's go ahead and read our text today and then we'll go through and look more closely at it, beginning with verse 11, chapter 19. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. So that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come! Assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Well, that's a pleasant. Well, this is a whole new. This begins a whole new literary unit, and it begins with this sevenfold description of Christ. And so, what I'd like to do is go through and look at this, this, this sevenfold description of Christ, and then come back to that and try to see what does that mean for you and me. The first thing we should note is that this that Christ comes on a white horse. You'll recall the first time that Christ came, he entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. This was in humility, because he came, he came in humility. This time, when he comes again, he comes on a white horse. A white horse is, the, uh, is a sign of victory. You see, when a, a, a Roman general would gain a victory, then he would come into town with the conquering armies, and he would come into town with all of his victorious army behind him and he would enter into a town on a white horse and when people saw the general from far off on the white horse they knew that the victory had been won now here's the interesting thing about this passage see when a Roman general would enter into a town on a white horse it was after the battle after the battle had been won. But you'll notice here, the battle hasn't been fought. Jesus comes before the battle on a white horse. You get it? This battle, the victory is utterly and completely certain. Jesus is so audacious as to say that I win. I know I'm going to win. I know I'm going to win so certainly that I'll just ride a white horse at the beginning of the battle. Why wait to the end? I want you to understand that those of you who are in Christ Jesus, in the end, even if put to death for your faith, you win. Amen. Because you are with the one who's already won. Amen. So he comes on a white horse, and I just love the timing of it. I think that's just great. He is also called faithful and true. Now, this is covenantal language, this is very Old Testament language. It declares that he is worthy. It declares that his justice is not um, influenced by sinful emotion or passions. It tells us that his judgments are final. See, at this point, every other leader has failed. Adam and Eve were put in the garden. And they were to be fruitful and multiply and they were to go out of the garden, spread the borders of the garden, so that the glory of God would cover the earth. They failed, and the garden was closed. Moses came along as a deliverer, a messianic figure, and he did a really good job for a while. And then he struck the rock twice. Not even, and he was not even allowed to enter into the promised land. He failed. Along comes Joshua, another messianic figure. Didn't quite complete the job. He failed. Along comes David. And you know about David, right? David failed. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ the righteous and he fulfilled every commandment of our our Father. He did everything righteous and true. You see, everybody's going to let you down. Every leader is going to fail you. We're getting ready for election season. We should vote for the people who best can represent us. But make no mistake, they will fail you. Jesus, who is righteous and true, will not fail you. He is the King who has never failed, but does exactly and perfectly that which His Father has called Him to do. His cause is just. So where are you going to put your hope? Where are you going to put your faith? Where are you going to place your confidence? Are you going to place your confidence in a system that is going to let you down? Are you going to place your confidence in Jesus Christ, who is righteous and true? Amen. His eyes are a flame of fire. We've already seen this description of Jesus. And we've seen that it describes Jesus sees everything perfectly and completely. See, Jesus knows the heart condition of men. We look on the outside and we say, oh, this person is good or this person is evil. God looks at the hearts of men and his eyes sees everything. God sees everything perfectly, and Jesus sees everything perfectly. Even the ungodly who claim membership in the covenant community, Jesus sees perfectly. You know, the biggest complaint about people um, who are unbelievers, they say, well, you know what, there's just too many hypocrites in the church. They're they're right, there are too many hypocrites in the church. But we don't look to hypocrites. We look to Christ. And Christ sees the hypocrites. All right, and he will he will bring them to repentance or to judgment, one or the other. Right? We read in the uh, the parable of the the wheat and the tares, and the tares are counterfeit wheat that are of no value. And Jesus says, let them grow up together, and then at the end of the age, I'll separate them. Why? Because his eyes are aflame of fire; and he sees what's wheat and he sees what what's tares. In the meantime, you and I are to be living our lives in this in such a way that we are not branded as hypocrites we see that on his head he has many diadems the dragon and the beast are counterfeit Christ the dragon wears that we saw earlier wears 7 crowns and the beast wears 10 crowns notice Christ's, Christ's diadems are unlimited that is there is no area of the universe where Jesus does not rule you can go into the farthest reaches of space. If we could ever trans if we could ever I guess get into a time machine and go to a different time, Christ would be there. So we need to ask does Jesus, how does Jesus rule in your life? Does he live where you does he rule in where you live and where you work and where you play? are your thoughts and your deeds and your actions guided by the one who is Lord of lords. We see that he has a name written on on him that nobody knows. This is a really interesting passage of scripture, a really interesting phrase, because it says nobody knows his name and then later in the next verse it says then his name is the word of God. And we see a bunch of names given to him. So there is some sort of a name that that is unknown. I believe this speaks to the divinity of Christ. Because while we may know a lot about Christ, we know He's the Word of God, we know He's righteous and true, we see Him with a flame of fire, we do not know Him exhaustively. We know Him accurately. We know He's the Word of God. We know Him truly. But you do not know Him exhaustively. You do not know everything there is to know about our Lord and Savior. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun... You will wake up one day and you will learn something new about the one who is ruling and reigning forever and ever. Have you ever read in scripture or be in prayer and somehow God reveals something new about himself to you? You ever had that? Is that exciting? Yeah, that's every day in eternity. That's every single day you wake up and go, I never knew that. I've been here a million years. I never knew that. What you know about him is accurate. What you know about Him is true. You just don't know everything. Why? Because God is infinite. What does Deuteronomy 29.29 say? It says something to the effect that the laws and statutes have been given to us and to our people that we may know the Lord but the secret things belong to God. There are some things that we know that God has revealed to us and there are some things we don't know. There's a name written on him which no man knows. And then we see that he has a robe dipped in blood. And there's been a lot of uh, uh, discussion about what this is. Is the robe dipped in blood? Is this a robe dipped in his own blood? That is the blood that is shed on Calvary for the sake of, of people that they might receive salvation. Is it that type of blood or is it the blood of those whom he is engaging in battle with my own personal opinion is I I believe it's of the defeated armies and and the reason I think so is because if you read Isaiah chapter 63 this passage of text follows Isaiah chapter 63 very closely and so we see a lot of images from Isaiah 63 so I think it's that of those um, of defeated armies I'm not going to die on that hill I'm willing to be wrong. But either way, if it is the blood of Christ shed on Calvary, or whether it is the blood of, of those who uh, continue in rebellion that he has victory over, here's what I want you to know, that Jesus has conquered his enemies by the shedding of blood, and he will conquer those who despise him. This is why you need to put down your arms, lay down your arms right now. Stop shaking your fist in heaven and fall at your feet before the Lord God Almighty and ask Him to have mercy on your soul. And I promise you this, He will have mercy on your soul right now, today, here and now without delay. We see that He is called the Word of God. Certainly, we see in John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on to describe how nothing is come to being without Him. That is the Word of God, who, we find out later in John, is Jesus Christ. But this Creator of all things is also not only the Creator of all things, but the Sustainer of all things. The reason this universe holds itself together is because Christ Jesus the righteous holds it in His nail-scarred hands. He is the creator and he is the revealer of God's truth. That is, all truth belongs to him. Do you listen to him? Do I listen to him? How do you know right from wrong? On what basis do you decide one thing is good and one thing is evil? On what basis do you discern one thing is right and one thing is wrong? How do you do that? How do you form your ethics? (laughs) On what basis is your morality established? Is it based on cultural norms? I hate to tell you this, but cultural norms change overnight. What is good today is tomorrow is evil. And what's evil today is to celebrate it tomorrow. We live in a shifting world. But Jesus is the Word of God. And His Word is true all times, forever and ever and ever, and it will never change. Folks, we need to live our lives and plant our lives and establish our lives on the Word of God, which is certain and it is true and is unwavering. And Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And then we see Him coming with this host of heaven. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen white and clean were following him there's a fair amount of discussion exactly who are these heavenly who are who is this host of heaven and of course the idea is this is an angelic host um, because hosts generally speak of heavenly beings um, but also it could be saints because they're dressed in, in fine linen linen and that's usually used to describe saints um, probably just go with saints. I think that's probably who it is, but perhaps it's saints and angels. I don't know. Here's what's interesting to me is they're clothed in fine linen. Here's why that's interesting to me is because where are they going? They're going to battle. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were going into battle, I probably wouldn't wear a linen toga. I mean, I'm wearing armor. But it's very interesting that this group wears linen because what we're going to find is they really don't have to engage in battle. See, this is an unfair fight. All right? It's one against a multitude. And just to clarify, it's not that the multitude that has the advantage. All right? It's unfair because the one who is the one, yeah, it's totally unfair. That's why those who are with him don't need to be wearing a whole lot of armor. He'll take care of it. And out of his mouth comes a, a sharp sword. Now, you need to understand the, the symbolic and metaphorical nature of the book of Revelation. Literally, there is not a sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. All right, He speaks of his word. When we see things coming out of the mouth of a pers- of person, especially in highly symbolic uh, books like Revelation speaks of authority just like when we saw the beast and the false prophet had frogs coming out of their mouth these aren't frogs coming out of their mouths All right? just like we read in Jeremiah God says I'm going to put my word in your mouth and it will be as fire to them and it will consume them as stubble All right? my word coming out of your mouth is like fire fire didn't really come out of their mouths my word burned them up Jesus has his word, his sharp sword, which is the word of God. And by that, he rules and reigns and judges. And then we see that on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I think John was writing to... A to an audience, he's he's appealing to his audience. They know exactly what he's talking about. There was a statue found, a Parthian statue of a, a commander in 151 AD, um, 50 years after this book was written. And on this statue, he was uh, the, the general was on a horse, and on his thigh was written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John is just writing in the using the contemporary thing to uh, engage his audience see the Parthian general is not king of kings and Lord of Lords Caesar is not king of kings and Lord of Lords Jesus is king of kings and Lord of Lords so here 's what we need to ask see we got one of the, the The challenges that I have in going through like a list of this with seven things is that all we do is we recognize the list and we we check them off and say, okay, I got the knowledge. I got the seven things. I know what they are. Intellectually, I'm good to go. I don't think these things are written so that we will just have an intellectual understanding of this image of seven attributes of Jesus at his second coming. But we do need to ask ourselves is this the Jesus you worship? Is the Jesus you worship the one who has rule and reign over everything? Unlimited crowns. Is he the one who is the creator and sustainer of all things? Is he the one who rules with his word? Is he truly the king of all things? Is he the victor over all? Is that the Jesus you or have we brought him down to our level? Is Jesus just simply our self help guru who will help us live our best life now? Which, by the way, if this is your be- this is not your best life. Amen. All right? Your be- this is a life. I hope it is a good life. I hope it is joyful and prosperous. It is not your best life. Your best life comes on the day when Jesus Christ arrives and comes in glory and rules and reigns. Then your best life begins. Do you plan your life around His, this unbelievable, incomparable, glorious Christ? Colossians chapter one seventeen brings us a picture of a glorious, incomparable Christ. Revelation chapter 19, beginning with verse 11, gives us an incomparable Christ for the purpose of us bowing at his feet and saying, Lord, you rule, you reign, I am yours. This is not an intellectual exercise for us to know seven aspects of Jesus Christ, but to glorify him in such a way that we fall down and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I will go wherever you go. I will do whatever you call me to do. Whatever you would like me to do, I am yours. That's why this is here. Or at least one of the reasons why it is here. And what do you hope? Are you hoping in something to anything other than this risen, glorious Christ? It is a shaky foundation. And thus, you're placing your hope and trust in the Christ who is given to us in this passage of text. Well... That passage seems like we can get a lot of amens out of it. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and we could end right there. And we'd all go out happy. But I'm going to keep going. And here we come to a place where we see another great feast. Remember last week we saw a feast? Wedding supper of the Lamb, right? And there was a lot of rejoicing. That was a great thing, right? We see another dinner today. If you've been with us, you've seen John likes to contrast things. John has this, what we'll call a dualism. And he gives you two choices, or he gives you two contrasting things. You have a harlot, you have a bride. You have a wedding feast. And you have a feast that is the dinner of the great supper of God's wrath. Here's the difference. You are either the dinner guest or you are the dinner. That's the difference. So you see how John gives us that very obvious... Which one are you going to be? Are you going to be the dinner guest or are you going to be dinner? You're going to be one or the other. See, there's no in-between for John. John doesn't give us gray. John says dinner guest or dinner. Bride or harlot. Christ or antichrist. There's no in-between. And so here is this next feast. And this is the supper of God's great wrath. And it echoes exactly from Ezekiel chapter 39. In Ezekiel chapter 39, a ruler by the name of Gog is being judged by God. Gog, G-O-G, is being judged by God, capital G-O-D. And is receiving judgment because he refuses to submit himself to Lord God Almighty. And listen to how God is going to, God, G-O-D, is going to judge Gog. G O G. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord, speak to every kind of bird and every beast of the field, assemble and come and gather every... Every side of to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice to you as a great sacrifice on the mountain of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of princes of the earth as though they were rams, lambs, goats, bulls, all of them. So you will eat fat until you are blooded and you will drink blood until you are drunk and you will sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you while You will be gutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men, and all the men of war, declares the Lord, and I will set my glory among the nations. Here we see in Ezekiel, God is saying, call to the birds of the air, and I'm calling for a great feast. And God says, and I will be glorified. This is exactly what's going on. John John is borrowing that language and bringing it forward to this. And he's saying, listen, listen, Everybody, great and small, who does not turn to Christ, will be dinner. You'll notice that it's great or small. I want you to understand the status will not save you. Your job will not save you. Your prominence or popularity will not save you. Your goodness will not save you. The fact that you are a good person, or at least you think you're a good person, will not save you. Even pitiful conditions won't save you. In other words, God won't say, oh, well, you've had such a rough life, I'm kind of obligated to make sure the next one's better. No, everybody comes to salvation the exact same way. They come through the door, Jesus Christ the righteous, that's the only way. Jesus himself said, Father, if there is another way, let this cup pass from me. Guess what? The cup didn't pass, there was no other way. So, unless we are saved by Christ, We are not the dinner guests. We are dinner. And then we read the victory of the king. As as the battle lines are drawn up, you might might wonder, haven't we read of a great battle that Jesus wins before? Yes, we have, as a matter of fact. The sixth bowl of wrath, the sixth and seventh bowl, chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, basically is repeated here. In chapter in the sixth bowl, a way was made for the kings of the earth to assemble on the great day of battle at Har Megiddo. Har is mountain, Megiddo is the mountain of Megiddo. We talked about there is no mountain in Megiddo. Um, There is a tell. There's a 70 foot man made pile of dirt, 70 feet high. It is not a mountain. It is a tell. There is no mountain in Megiddo. This is just simply talking about the. The symbolic overthrow of the evil forces by God's glorious might. God is going to, God is going to win the victory. This speaks of the collective defeat of judgment by Christ when He comes again. I, I don't know that an actual army gathers for battle against Christ, because how do they know He's coming? Number one, because as far as I know, nobody knows the day or the hour. So how can an army with with a general Farmers of the earth be gathered in some sort of place on the earth ready for the Lord's return again we need to take into account the type of literature we're reading in order to have right interpretation and basically what we're seeing is well, Christ comes and he defeats evil and wickedness in Psalm chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 why do the nations plot a vain thing we see that happening they've plotted a vain thing against the Lord and his anointed that is literally the Lord and his Messiah and it is a vain thing to come against the Lord and his Messiah it is a fool it is folly by the way this isn't much of a victory or I'm sorry this isn't much of a battle it's a great victory not much of a battle because Christ comes and it's over I know we watch movies and we see this great day of battle and it's all drawn out. It's some some great thing. But in the Bible, it's really not a great thing. Well, it is a great thing. But it's not a big production. It's like Christ shows up and it's over. Done. It's not like Christ gets into a battle with Satan or something like that and they, you know... You know, it kind of goes back and forth and back and forth and you're not quite sure if Christ's going to win. I hope so. You know, maybe, oh, and Satan gets one up. That just doesn't happen. Christ shows up and it's over. Why? Because he's king of kings and lord of lords. He's creator of all things. Satan is not his co-equal. So... Instant victory for Christ. The beast and the false prophet are cast into eternal doom. We've talked about this false trinity. So two out of three are defeated. In the next chapter, we'll see um, the dragon defeated. Basically, in the end, we are going to see the dragon, the beast, the false prophet, not the harlot all judged for her sins. In other words, all evil will be perfect because a new heaven and a new earth is on its way and there will be no evil. There will be no dragon. There will be no false prophet. There will be no beast and there will be no harlot. It will be a world. It will be a place where Christ rules supreme. First, he's going to get rid of all of that. And then, By the way, the armies of the beast are judged and they're judged by the word of God. And here we begin to see the struggle of redemptive history reaches its climax. Genesis 3.15, you know that, is coming to fruition. I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And you will bruise him on on the heel and he will bruise you on the head. We saw the inaugural victory at the crucifixion and the resurrection. But there will come a day when that will be fully realized. I'll conclude with this. The the second coming of Christ is pure gospel. Pure gospel. It is good news. Gospel means good news. It is truly good news. And the gospel is good news. Why? Because Paul tells us that the gospel is the means by which men and women are saved. It is the means by which one is transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It is through the gospel, that is, that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose again for your sins, died in your place, that you can um, go from dinner to dinner guest. All men are born, all mankind is born by nature, Paul tells us, we are children of wrath. That's by nature. So how do I get from being a child of wrath to a child of the king? through the blood of Jesus Christ and turn your life to Christ and then you will go from being a child of wrath to a, a child of his inheritance the manner by which one is transferred is the cross of Jesus Christ you see God's wrath here we see God's wrath in this, in this passage God's wrath is going, to be, is going to be God is going to judge we, we, we all believe in, in judging wickedness that's why we have courts of law and God is going to judge wickedness now here's the thing are you going to stand under God's wrath or what are you going to do Jesus says I'll tell you what I'll bear it for you that's the deal sounds like a good deal to me I hate to put it in those terms but the deal is this Jesus says I will bear the wrath of God on your behalf and you will be saved or you can bear it yourself whichever one We should note that this is grace alone. The way we come to Christ is through grace. That is an unmerited, undeserved gift. The gift of salvation, you did not deserve it. You did not earn it. It is by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. And our God who judges is also our God who will bestow that grace upon you right now, today. The second coming is a day of great anticipation, but it is also a day of great dread. God's grace and His long suffering continues for now. But my admonition to you today is to flee to Christ. Flee to Christ to be your Savior. For you don't know which day He will come to be your judge. Today is the day of salvation and now is the acceptable time. The Savior is willing and waiting saying, I will save you from your sins. But today is the day. I don't know when he will come as judge of the world, but he will come. So, I guess our question today is this. Are you the dinner guest or are you dinner? Flee to Christ and the invitation will be given to you to be a dinner guest at his banqueting table. I would advise that's the way to go. Let's stand and let's pray.